Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we have been overjoyed this morning and thankful to sing praises to you and to acknowledge your name as your church and as your people. And we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to hear from you and to hear from your word yet again. We know, O oh Father, that the power of your word lies in its nature and also in the spirit who applies it and who inspired it and who acts according to it. We ask you, O oh Holy Spirit, as we hear from your word again this morning, that you would bless it and accompany it and use it to transform our hearts and to see Christ our Savior more clearly that you would strengthen us by it and equip us according to it, that you would well up within our hearts a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and an adoration for him, that our Lord would not merely be one on the pages of Scripture written, but that he would be one on the pages of our hearts and one that we truly love and adore and commune with. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are grateful to hear from you this morning. We are grateful to hear of the way that you loved a Samaritan woman, a sinner, and for the way that you love us. May we be blessed by your word and by your example this morning. And may we give glory to your name as your people and rejoice in the hope that we can say, Behold, our God. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be considering verses 1 to 26 of chapter 4. And in this passage, the controversy between John's disciples and a Jew caught the attention of the Pharisees. And when news came to them that Jesus was actually baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, though John, the evangelist who writes this gospel, says in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing, his disciples were, uh, these Pharisees became unsettled. And so they're already troubled by John the Baptist as his ministry is going and growing. But now here is this unknown man who had just gone into the temple and cast out the buyers and the sellers in this uh, powerful, miraculous manner. And now, not just John the Baptist, but now this Jesus, this, this unknown individual, is rapidly gaining attention. And so Jesus becomes aware that the Pharisees are growing more and more troubled by him in his ministry. And this is something that's true even in the world today. People are troubled by 
the influence of Jesus. And our Lord becomes aware of it and he leaves the area. And so Jesus' appointed time hadn't come to go to the cross. And had he stayed there and remained in Judea, he may have been cut off earlier than God had planned for him and put to death. Uh, so Jesus leaves to go to Galilee where his public ministry is going to attract kind of less attention than being so near to Jerusalem. But that's not his only reason for going. Um, in chapter 4, we're going to see how God works all things according to his divine providence and plan. And we're going to see that our Lord had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman that he meets on his way to Galilee. And we're going to consider that conversation that takes place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman and how it ultimately leads to Jesus' unambiguous declaration to this Samaritan woman that he is the promised Messiah. And so the account that John gives us once again points to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, and it reinforces Again, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you can have life in his name, eternal life. But as I was reading this passage, and we'll look at that, I was also struck by something that is going to come out of this passage. And it's the nature and the character and the love of Jesus. It's easy to go through the Gospel of John and to always have a sort of an argument being made to you about the divinity of Christ, and it's true, and, G and John lays it out for us passage after passage. But sometimes we can get into the argument and the debate so much that we actually fail to look at his character to look at his patience, to look at his love and his kindness and his mercy. And Chris, your call to worship this morning from Isaiah 42 was exactly perfect for the Gospel of John. A bruised reed he did not break. And he was kind and merciful. And that really comes out in John chapter 4, as he talks to this Samaritan woman. And so, this is not a narrative that is really easily outlined. And I could put some kind of outline into here, but uh, it's just artificial. It's really just artificial. It's forced in the text. I mean, this narrative kind of is a whole unit through the whole chapter. And so, we're not going to go through and broken down outline. We're just going to go through the passage, talk about it up through verse 26, and just marvel, I pray, at the beauty of Christ and how he communicates with this Samaritan woman. So let us hear the first half of this conversation that we're looking at this morning. Next week will be her response to it, uh, but let's hear John chapter 4, verse 1 to 26. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his own to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journeys, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The idea here that this was a divine appointment by God really comes from verse 4. John notes that Jesus, you'll notice the way it's written, had to pass through Samaria. So if you were leaving from Judea and you were headed north to Galilee, going through Samaria was the most 
convenient route, and it's about a three-day walk, but it wasn't the only way. One could have crossed the Jordan near Jericho and then headed back up along the eastern shore of the Jordan River along the banks, and they could have headed all the way up, and then when they got to around the Sea of Galilee, they could have totally bypassed Samaria and then crossed over and then been into Galilee. A little bit longer, but it's very possible to go that way. But Jesus doesn't do that. And so being perfectly in line with his Father's will, John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And so he does, and we're going to see why. But he goes through Samaria, and he comes to a town in the city of Samaria that's called Sychar, which we're told was near the field that Jacob gave to his son, and that's in Genesis 48, 22. And the town's located on the slope of, there are two mountains there, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And it's on the slopes of Mount Ebal, which is bigger than Mount Gerizim. It's about one mile from the town of Shechem. And John says that Jacob's well was also there. And apparently it's still there, Jacob's well. Nothing's really said about Jacob's well in the scriptures, but tradition attests to it that Jacob did have a well there, and it's still there. And a lot of churches were actually built around that well over different periods and were ultimately destroyed by the Muslims. But today the well still lies there near an unfinished, in the shadows of this unfinished Orthodox church. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty awesome, actually. In any case, this area where Jesus is going is rich in Old Testament history, Shechem. Shechem is the place where God first appeared to Abraham. Shechem is where Joseph's brothers were tending their flocks when Jacob sent Joseph to them. It's the place where it, when Israel took Canaan was designated as a city of refuge. Joshua addressed all the tribes of Israel here for the last time. The bones of Joseph are buried there. Jeroboam dwelt there and made it his home when he was made king of Israel. And it's the city, in the city of Samaria itself, also in that area, like I said, is Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where the solemn blessings and curses are spoken to Israel after they entered Canaan. Huge, important area and city in biblical history, but more important really into the background here is the encounter with the Samaritan woman is the history of the region known as Samaria. So not just the city of Samaria or Shechem, but the entire region is, is important for this account. So sometimes Samaria is used of the whole northern kingdom. And so with this Samaritan woman, it gives us some insight into this conversation. And let me just give you a bit of that history here. So when Omri becomes king of Israel, the northern tribes after they split, he created the city Samaria and he called it the capital city of the northern kingdoms. And so the Assyrians would eventually come 
and capture Samaria in the year 722 to 721. And they deported all of the Israelites who were of any substance or means, right? Any, any of the noble kind of Israelites, they deported them and they took them out of that northern area um, and they settled the area with foreigners. This is how they would do it. They would conquer an area and they would basically bring in their own and they would settle the area. And so this is what the Assyrians did and they, they took out the noble Israelites. Some were remaining and they began to um, land in that in that area. And so eventually they would intermarry with the remaining Israelites. And so as far as an Israelite was concerned, when they looked at a Samaritan now, they looked at a Samaritan as a half-bred people. They, they looked at Samaritans as lesser people because they weren't real Israelites. They were now mixed with these, with these Assyrians. And so they were not a Jewish people, and they didn't adhere to Judaism, but they adhered to their own religion. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17 to 18. Total paganism. It's, it's not Judaism at all. And so even when the Jewish exiles of the southern kingdom, when they were to come back and return to Jerusalem, and they wanted to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans offered to help them, the Jewish people refused, and this enraged the Samaritans, and they really became these bitter enemies. And eventually, even, the Samaritans would erect their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim in 400 B.C., and a Judean ruler, Hasmonean ruler in Judea named John Hyrcanus, uh, would destroy that temple. And so by the time we come here to the time of our Lord and these Samaritans, the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along and the Samaritans have really so abandoned any kind of Judaism from way back when that they kind of had their own religious heritage. Their religious heritage did keep to the first, they believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, but they rejected the rest. And they rejected the temple in Jerusalem, and they only saw Mount Gerizim as the place where their temple once stood where they should worship. And so the point is, is this animosity is deeply seated. And so out of divine necessity, Jesus makes a three-day journey into Samaria. God is good. He's not like us. He doesn't see the world in the way that we see the world. He doesn't divide up people groups and nations and say, I don't want to save any of those and I don't want to save any of those. They're not worthy and I don't want to interact with this group or that group. But when God looks at the world, he has a people that he has ordained from before the foundation of the world, a people that he is coming to save. And he looks at Samaria, and in Samaria, of all places, he sends the Son of God to go to Samaria, and he does. 
and it's around the sixth hour, about noon, because um, they'd begin their counting at sunrise, in the heat of the day, in a very arid land, Jesus is traveling into Samaria, and Jesus becomes tired and thirsty from his journey, and so he takes a seat beside the well while his disciples go to buy food. John, I don't overlook that. John includes this description of Jesus as being weary from his journey, and, and it should give us great comfort. Because we've already seen John has portrayed Jesus as the Son of God and divine, but he also attributes in references like this the full humanity of Jesus is clearly attested to. Jesus is one who grew tired and needed sleep. Jesus hungered and he needed food. Jesus thirsted and he needed drink. Jesus was liable to pain and suffering as all of us are. And in all these things, his body was framed like ours and at no time do we ever read that Jesus used his sovereign ability to fulfill his own needs? He had no pail to get water. He did not make one for himself, though he could have. He had no food to eat, so his disciples went to get some, though he could have made bread and fish for himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. He took on human nature in all its fullness, only sin excluded. And what does that mean for you and me and for this Samaritan woman? It means Jesus knows our frame and our weakness and our feebleness. And he offers himself to us in our distress. And he does so with compassion and mercy. No more perfect Savior could ever be offered to sinners. Isn't that true? It's perfect a God mighty to save, and a God who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he walked in our shoes. And he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So John tells us that Jesus is sitting at the well and he's tired and he's thirsty. And a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. This is why he went. He went there because his father wanted him to talk to this Samaritan woman. And so this Samaritan woman who comes, she comes alone. And that's unusual because women are more likely to go together to fetch water. And they were to go later in the day when it was cooler. But this woman comes alone probably because she's a moral outcast. You see that later on in the passage. She has five husbands. She's currently living with a man that is not her husband. And so even in her community, she's sort of this social moral outcast. And rather than going with a bunch of women, she has to go by herself. And rather than going in the evening, she actually goes to this well right there in the heat, in the heat of the day. In the heat of the day. And John notes that. 
John actually notes, this is important, I think, to John, he notes the exact time. He says it is the sixth hour. Now, you remember when Nicodemus went to Jesus? What does it say Nicodemus went? He went at night. But John doesn't actually tell you what time. He just says Nicodemus went at night to see Jesus. Nicodemus, this educated, powerful, wealthy, respected, orthodox Jew, he comes to Jesus under the cloak of darkness. And John makes no reference to the time. But here is an uneducated, despised, poor peasant woman, a social and a moral outcast, who God divinely appoints to meet Jesus. And John specifically notes that she comes and at the sixth hour, at high noon, when there are no shadows. You know that, right? At high noon, there are no shadows because the sun is directly shining down. And what I think John does that for is because he's bringing our minds back to what Jesus said in John three sixteen to 19. This is the judgment, Jesus said. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so here is this Samaritan woman. She doesn't come to Jesus specifically on purpose, as we are going to see, but what does happen is her sin is exposed by the light of the world. And her response to her sin being exposed to her is what makes all the difference between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And so here she is, and she comes to, to the well, and she meets Jesus. She meets Jesus, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And he says to her, give me a drink. He's thirsty, but Jesus doesn't, He's not really driven by his thirst in the question. He's more driven by the desire that he has to engage this woman in a conversation about something that is far more important than water and thirst. It's, he wants to get her to think about her heart. And so her reply is what you might expect from a Samaritan and a Jew having a conversation. She's caught by surprise and she says, as Jesus, this Jewish man sitting by the well, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The, that phrase right there, no dealings, it, it's actually, it, it actually refers to not, not so much not associating with, but they not to use together with. 
is kind of the idea. In other words, she is surprised that Jesus, being a Jew, was even willing to draw water from the same pail or cup of a Samaritan woman. She's saying, wouldn't that defile you as a Jew? But I like D.A. Carson's observation when he says, far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. Others become defiled when they touch lepers. Jesus touches even lepers and they are healed. And so she doesn't realize that the one that's before her, he's not worried about being defiled by a Samaritan. And so Jesus uses this opportunity and he doesn't debate with her the issues between Samaritans and Jews. But what he wants to do is he wants to get her thinking and to draw her attention to something infinitely more important because he has come to offer her living water. You see, she sees a thirsty Jewish traveler before her, but before her sits one who can give her the gift of eternal life, and she's not even aware of that gift or the giver himself. She needs more than water, and Jesus wants her to come. If she had seen his glory and recognized him as the author of life and the giver of eternal life, she would have asked him for eternal life, and he would have given her living water. Living water is salvation in all of its fullness, the forgiveness of sins, and a new life that glorifies God. If she would have just seen him, she would have asked. That's for all of us here this morning. If you can't see Christ clearly for who he is, you cannot ask him to give you living water. But Christ is even now being displayed right before us. He, in this passage, is making himself known not only to the Samaritan woman, but he's making himself known to you and me this morning. He is saying, if you would see me, and if you would know who I am, you would ask me to give you living water, and I would give you living water to well up within your hearts. But she doesn't see it. She doesn't see it. This living water he's referring to is a living water that the Old Testament scriptures often referred to. One of the things that God condemned Israel for was their rejection of him as the living water. In Jeremiah 2.13, God declares, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that is, they have rejected the infinite supply of God's faithful goodness, and instead they sought stagnant waters from broken cisterns that they themselves made. Cisterns which left them without any water whatsoever. 
holding nothing capable of giving or sustaining life or cleansing them or giving them any blessing at all. They forsaked God, the living water, in order to have this stagnant, dirty, filthy water that gives no life. But God also spoke through his prophets of a day when Zechariah in Zechariah 14.8 says, On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. This coming day, Ezekiel speaks about in Ezekiel 47.9, And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. And Isaiah 12.13, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. God said a day would come when living, fresh water would be poured out coming out of Jerusalem and it would be poured out onto dry and thirsty lands. That's what Christ brings. And she doesn't see it. I wonder if there are people sitting here right now that still don't see it. You don't understand what Jesus is getting at. And how could she understand? She's a Samaritan, and so she says to him, still thinking in earthly terms, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. And so she's basically saying, he obviously can't get the water from this well. Besides not having anything to draw with, she's saying even Jacob had to dig this deep well to drink. It's over 100 feet deep. We all drank from it. Our descendants drank from it. How can you expect to get water She's saying to him, when so much work went into digging this one, can you do something more than our father Jacob did? That's how she's thinking about it. What are you talking about? Living water. Look at this well. It's so deep. Who do you think you are? Jacob had to dig it. Are you greater than Jacob? She's naturally, she's thinking about natural things, physical things. Always trying to interpret spiritual truths in a carnal and materialistic mind. And so Jesus, he's so patient with our ignorance. He's so patient with her. We're so slow to heart to believe, but you look how he takes her by the hand. And he gently is leading her to the truth. And he tells her in verses 12 to 14... He tells her that the water he's talking about is not like the water you get from this well of Jacob. He's saying, I am greater than Jacob. Not in so many words yet, but he says, the water that I offer, he goes, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water, he tells her, that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water 
that I will give him will become in him a spring of water filling, welling up to eternal life. And still she doesn't understand. She's still thinking in physical terms. She would like water to quench her thirst to avoid going on that long trip. And so she says to him, kind of probably in a little bit of a snarky way, but kind of unsure now, you see her moving along. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come draw water from here anymore. So she still doesn't understand. And, but I think the fact that she now asks Jesus for this water, whatever her motive is, it's kind of this little spark of faith that our Lord sees in her heart. And even if there's a tinge of snarkiness in it, she did do what our Lord had said she should do at the very beginning, right? If you would ask me, I would give it. And so she asks. She asks, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. Come without price. Incline your ear and come to me, God says, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And so she comes a little closer, and she's inclining her ear. And so with that, our Lord sees that, and he turns the conversation, and he starts to address two critical issues that this woman needs to understand before she can receive the living water. She needs to understand two things. She needs to understand the reality of her sin, and she needs to understand the identity of the one who is before her as the Messiah, the one who could save her and forgive her of, of her sin. Anytime you're sharing the gospel, any faithful gospel presentation, a sinner must come to terms with the fact that they are a sinner before they will ever turn and see their need for a Savior. That's why Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. People who think that they have it all together will look at Christ with disdain and not longing. People that think that they are not sinners and not guilty will not heed the words of Christ, but they will forever push them away and hide them. They will never come to terms with it. They will never come to repentance. They will always justify themselves before God. So they must come to know. And J.C. Ryle, he remarked, he said, never does a soul value the gospel medicine until it feels its disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as a Savior until he discovers that he himself is a lost and ruined sinner. Ignorance of sin is invariably attended by neglect of Christ. And so our Lord helps her see her sin. He says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow. Jesus brings before her the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Like a perfect arrow aimed right at her conscience, he takes his word and he applies it directly to her life. And he says, this is your sin. He does that with all of us. We all know our sin. And Jesus sees all of our sin and he points specifically to this one. Shall not commit adultery. And you've had five husbands perfectly aim. And so now the question is, how is she going to respond? Will she hate the light and flee from it because of what it exposes? Will she abruptly but politely end the conversation? This happens all the time. You confront someone with their sin and you bring it out before them in the hopes of pointing them to Christ. Maybe at this point she might say, Okay, sir, it was nice talking to you. I need to go now. Ah, yeah, that's what happens. Sometimes people just shut their ears off. I don't want to hear about my sin. I don't want to hear that I'm a sinner. And so they plug it, and then they walk away. Nice, nice meeting you. After all, Jesus unmasked her sin. There was nowhere for her to hide. She's standing right before the judge of the living and the dead, and she doesn't know him as that, but he knows her. He knows everything that she has ever done, and he brings it right out, and she's aware that he's not some ordinary man, so what is she going to do? What do you do when God sees everything and all of your sin? Do you flee? Do you suppress that truth and say, you know what, I'm going to pretend that it's not true? Well, you know what she does? <laughs> she does what every sinner who wants to be saved does, and she stays, to, she stays there and she talks more. She doesn't hide she, she doesn't feel compelled to run away. She actually strangely feels welcomed by Jesus. He's been kind to her. He's not been condescending. He didn't begin by attacking her for all of her sin, even though he knew them. He knew her sin, but that's not how he began he began by conversing with her and opening the door to address her spiritual need. He was willing to converse with this Samaritan woman no matter what her past looked like. And this is the heart of our Savior's love towards sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting 
life. And he stretches out his hand of mercy and compassion to the vilest of sinners. The vilest of sinners who have no thoughts of him and he is willing to save any who cry out to him. And I think this Samaritan woman senses this in Jesus. And she sees it and she humbly acknowledges the truth of what he said. She confesses the reality of it. It is true. How does she confess the reality of it? By saying, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, you're not wrong. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't explain her sins away. She doesn't say, the reason I'm divorced is because my husband was mean to me and all five of them beat me and they did this and they did that and it's their fault and I left because of this and explaining everything away. No. She actually accepts that he is right. I perceive you're a prophet. And so now wanting to receive this living water and seeing that she is guilty and she needs forgiveness and seeing that there is something more to this man who sits at this well, she actually wonders how she might approach God and worship him. She's thinking, well, how can I meet God? You, as a Jewish prophet and not a Samaritan, you say we are to worship in Jerusalem. My people say we are to worship on this mountain, Gerizim, which is right. Help me know. Help me know, man, by the well, who's clearly a prophet. Help me see how am I supposed to know how to approach God? Where, it, where does the truth lie? Where is it? And he begins by explaining to her that that point is irrelevant. It's interesting. The point is irrelevant. It, because a time is coming, he says, when true worship will be neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Because under the gospel, all earthly places will be alike. All external ceremonies, rituals, sacrifices, altars, everything like it, whether Jewish or Samaritan, will be obsolete. So there's no point in carrying on this prolonged debate. So he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he insists, though, to a Samaritan that the Jews have it right, though. They have the complete revelation of God. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Jewish people, not the Samaritans, had scriptural warrant for claiming to have the true God, for they had God's complete Old Testament revelation 
And it is this complete revelation from God that speaks of salvation and the Messiah that was to come. And so the Jews are the vehicle of that revelation, not the Samaritans. And Jesus makes that point to her. But he says in verse 23, again, but the hour is coming and is now here. The hour is coming. That is in reference to him fulfilling his ministry, going to the cross to die for sin and to rise again and to be exalted back to glory. That hour is coming, and in a sense, it has already become begun because I am right here, present before you, preaching the kingdom of God. The time will come and is now here, he tells her when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Worshiping in spirit, the Father in spirit and truth. This doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the human spirit. The new covenant promises True worship will not be grounded in external conformity, but it will flow from the heart and it will arise from an internal renewal of the soul. This is what we saw in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. It'll be from the human spirit where worship will arise from an internally motivated new heart that is consistent with God's word, that's what truth means, and centered on Christ. Internal, centered on Christ, the truth and the hope of mankind. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is saying a time is coming where all of that external baloney will be obsolete and worship will be a matter of heart service, not lip service and formal devotion. Jesus went on to condemn the Jewish Pharisees, remember? Matthew 15, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but what's far from him? Their hearts. But their hearts are far from me, he says. In vain do they worship me. So, neither Jews nor Samaritans had it right, and nor could they have it apart from Jesus and his work and the Spirit applying that work. True worship can only take place in and through Jesus. The true temple, the resurrection, and the life. And the Father has come to draw such worshipers to himself through his Son. And Paul, 
And Philippians 3.3 speaks of that. There's no other way to approach God. Jesus goes on to say, God is spirit. He's not a man that can be found and approached and addressed like some earthly king. He doesn't have flesh and bones. He's the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? It means this. That if you are to come to God and worship him, you must have Christ alone as your Savior and Redeemer. He must be your mediator. Christ must be the one through whom you come in order to worship God. He is how God revealed himself to man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as much as is possible for a human being to know God, who is spirit, as much as is possible, we can know him through Christ. I like what John MacArthur said. He said, had he not revealed himself in scripture, that is God, and in Jesus Christ, God would be utterly incomprehensible. Now, she still doesn't get it. The woman said to him, we'll close with this, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, she's saying, I want to know more about this. And I know that Messiah is coming. Now, in her mind, she didn't really necessarily think about the Jewish Messiah, but they thought a prophet was going to come from Deuteronomy 18 to be like a second Moses, and he would tell her all of the truth. And she's hopeful that there is this Messiah who is going to reveal all of these things to her. And nonetheless, though, she was correct in insisting that the Messiah, when he came, would make all these matters plain. And so Jesus says to her in verse 26, she says, I know the Messiah's coming. He's going to come and he's going to make all these things plain. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am. There is no he in the original. He says, I who speak to you am. I am, Jesus says. I am the Messiah. Jesus says that to you and me right now. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the one who can bring you to God. And there is no other. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. She asked him, the man next to the well, who asked her for a drink, 
The first question she asked him was, are you greater than our father Jacob? Indeed, he's greater. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Jacob. He's greater than Isaac. He's greater and then every Old Testament saint, he's greater than any president, he's greater than any king, he's greater than any war hero, he's greater than uh, Bill Gates, he's greater than uh, Jeff Bezos, he's greater than Zuckerman, is that his name? He's greater than that guy, he's greater, he's greater than LeBron James, he's greater than any athlete, he's greater than any foolish human being that ever walked the face of the earth. He is the greatest, infinitely greater than anyone ever created because he is the creator of everyone. And at his knees, every knee will bow and confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And either you are going to bow that knee now today before him and cry out to him for forgiveness, or one day that knee will bow when it is broken by a rod of iron and it is forced to bow. But when it is that time and it is forced, it will come with judgment. But now is the day of grace and he tells her this. She receives his answer. He is the promised Messiah and he has done that for us, beloved, who have believed in him. He has given himself to us and given us eternal life. Remarkable mercy, wisdom, patience. So tenderly did he lead this Samaritan woman to acceptance of him as her Messiah. And how do we know? I think we know that she embraced him because of what she does, which we will look at next week. She leaves his presence, the presence of the light, and rather than fleeing the light, you know what she does? She says, come with me to the light. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the tenderness and compassion and patience of our Lord Jesus Christ who has loved us and shown us mercy and kindness and gently has led us along to see his glory and to behold who he is. Oh God, we pray that there would be none here this morning who see Christ and flee in hiding or indifference, but that every soul that is here by your spirit would be convicted of their own sin and see before them a Christ who is willing and desires to forgive. You are so merciful and gracious, long-suffering and kind and patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of salvation in Christ. And we ask, O oh God, that your spirit would work among us and that you would let none in this place go down into eternity apart from you. Help us all to see our own sin and to confess it and to look to Christ with eyes of love and thanksgiving, for he is first loved us. 
we ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen.